If I fall short If I don't make the grade If your expectations aren't met in me today There's always tomorrow Well, welcome. Look, it's uh, the few, the proud. The, made it. The ones who believe where two or three of you are gathered <laughs> in my name. Um, I'm Mark Love. This is Mallory Wyckoff. I'm going to let her introduce herself in a minute. Um, I'm going to let her. Um, I'm uh, for four more weeks the Dean of the School of Theology and Ministry at Rochester, now University. That change was made a few weeks ago. I'm going to be Dean four more weeks, and then someone else can do it. We'll let uh, someone else with um, poor judgment take on that role for a while. Uh, I've been doing a late-night thing at the lectures for um, several years in a row now, and usually they pair me with Richard Beck, and some of you might be wondering why Richard's not here, and we've had a falling out. Um, we don't talk anymore. Um, you know, uh, uh, we don't send Christmas cards anymore. And I found a better partner. I, I've upgraded um, with Mallory, and I'm going to let Mallory introduce herself. I'm going to let you. Mallory is now going to introduce herself. Thank you, friend. I'm going to let you feel guilty for that. Um, I, well, you might remember this or not, but Richard was my dissertation advisor, so I feel like I at least have his blessing to be here, okay. at least for the project. I don't know if he would bless what I'll do tonight, but we'll see. Uh, good to be with you, friends. My name is Mallory Wyckoff. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, but I'm from Clearwater, Florida. I will always claim that. I do a lot of different things. I teach in the Bible departments of um, Lipscomb University as well as Rochester University. I am a spiritual director. I have a practice in Nashville and meet with folks there. I uh, help to train other directors through Lipscomb's Institute for Christian Spirituality. I uh, also work with our Doctor of Ministry students at Lipscomb, helping to support them as they're doing their research and trying to, to survive that. And uh, primarily, I chase around a two-and-a-half-year-old, and that takes up a lot of my time. So glad to be with you all. Glad to join you tonight. Yeah, and working on a new one. I thought I was hiding it really oh. well. Is that, is that not? My bad. Shoot. Okay. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. Black is slimming, Mark. It's slimming. <laughs> Um, last summer, I had the privilege of attending a conference hosted by Miroslav Volf at Yale University on joy and the good life. I was actually a guest of Pepperdine University there. They paid for Rochester folks to show up. And the opening night... The, no, it was day, but the opening lecture was done by this guy, Willie James Jennings. And he's like my new theological crush. You know, for years it was Walter Brueggemann and then Richard Hayes, and, but now it's this guy. Um, he's written a commentary on Acts that's great. He's written a book called uh, The Christian Imagination. Theology and the Origins of Race. It's not an easy book either. Um, it's not an easy read, and it's a convicting book. Um, I read, I was reading one night out by a fire, a campfire near, in, in our backyard, and I began weeping, and I went in and said, Donna, pray for me. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live now. But fortunately, Willie gave me kind of a way forward this summer. 
he, made, he gave a brilliant presentation on joy as a work of resistance against the powers of death and despair. And I've been kind of cranking on that ever since. Like, the, the language, the images, the stories, and I've been trying to figure out how that would work in my context. And we're going to try some stuff tonight, and I've tried some stuff at Rochester with mixed results, but I'm convinced there's something really deep here. And I wanted a conversation partner about this. And, um, and again, Richard and I are on the outs, so that's not true. We are not, we're great friends. Uh, I don't know why we're not doing anything together. Mike invited me and he didn't invite Richard. I don't know why. Um, maybe they're on the outs. I, I don't know. Uh, but I thought, I got to have somebody to think about this with. And Mallory was in the Doctor Mystery program five years ago, and I taught a course there. She did great work. But beyond that, I've been with her now uh, in several different settings, and she just always kills it. And her life experience is so different than mine that I thought it would bring uh, another angle of, you know, um, thinking and experience and um, a way to get after some things Jennings suggests. So, um, so that's why we're here tonight, to kind of think about this idea. And we've broken it into three parts, so hopefully we'll make it digestible as we go along. The first, we're going to define joy as a work. What does it mean for joy to be a work? What, what does that mean? We think of it maybe as an emotion or a feeling, not as a work. Second, we're going to think of it as a work of resistance against the powers of death and despair. And then third, we're going to talk about the space that's necessary. To, it's necessary to create a certain kind of space to do this work. And we hope tonight this might be a space for that kind of work. Um, and then we're going to have fun at the end. We're going to kind of move through those three things. So uh, what do you think? We can do this? I mean, I think we have to at this point. So yeah, let's just right. give it a go. Yeah. So I'm going to begin with the first move. Joy as a work. What do we mean by joy as work? Isn't joy a feeling? If it's a feeling, how can it be a work or something that we do? How is joy different from other things like happiness or contentment? And if it is a work, then what does it look like to take up this work? All good questions. I'm not sure I have answers for all of them. But here are a few of the ways I'm thinking about this. Joy is different than happiness. Like, you know that, right? Happiness is thinner. It describes how I feel from moment to moment. Like, I watched the Blazers beat the Nuggets last night, and that made me happy. I watched it with Tim. That made us happy. If they lose to Denver in Portland, I will be unhappy. So it's related to circumstance. It's, um, it fluctuates uh, from moment to moment. And the pairing is 
happy and unhappy, right? So I began thinking, what's the pairing with joy? If happy is paired with unhappy, then what do you pair joy with? There's a, a woman named Joy in our midst. No, I won't try to pair you tonight, Joy. But wouldn't it be a word like sorrow or despair? So happy, unhappy, that's kind of a narrow band of human experience, right? And it fluctuates moment to moment, day to day. But joy goes with sorrow or grief or loss. So those two words to me kind of mark the extremities of human experience. Like joy is the highest of highs. And uh, sorrow is the lowest of lows. And I don't know if you've ever really, like, you can't work yourself into sorrow, right? It happens, and you find yourself sorrowful. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I just want you to see now that joy marks kind of an extremity of human experience an extreme kind of moment in our lives, and that we're not always in control of when it appears or what happens, right? Um, sometimes it's imposed on us. We're, we're surprised by joy, right? Um, so uh, just like we're surprised by sorrow, when it comes. Um, they feel greater than you. Joy feels bigger than me. It's often shared. It's often communal. It often touches more than I can say. When I have joy, I can't always tell you everything that's going on, right? Sorrow is deep. It's more than I can say. It comes out in groans and tears. And you get the idea? We're marking kind of the limits of human experience in some ways when we talk about joy and sorrow. There are expressions, root expressions, of life and death itself. When we experience sorrow, we bumped into the power of death. When we experience joy, we have found one of the purest expressions of life. Um, I like um, Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not food or drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I think joy is a gift of the Spirit. It's not, it's not that happy, unhappy thing. It's something given to us. It's the Spirit of life on the kind of positive extremity of who we are and how we experience things. Are you with me? Are we good? Okay, let's, that's Mark Love's definition of joy. By the way, at Yale, they'd been working on, a, on this three years, and they had yet to come up with a working definition of joy. So I think we're way ahead of Yale at this point. Um, so let's get back to Jennings. He says, joy is a work of resistance against the powers of death. Which Mallory will have more to say about in a few minutes. But if you believe the Bible, 
apart from the possibilities of the gospel, death and despair are the powers that impinge upon our lives. We are ruled apart from the gospel. We are ruled by the dominion of sin and death. That's the given, right? Joy is therefore something that we have to work at because what's given to us is the power of death. Um, I like the idea of the given. In fact, Jennings says that our work of joy is improvisation around the given. If what we're given by the powers in this world is sin and death, then the work of joy is improvisation around the given. Let me give you a few examples. Um, the given in Detroit is pretty awful. It's where I live. Uh, for 10 years I have it, and I'm stunned every time I drive through parts of Detroit. It's like driving through Aleppo. It's like driving through Beirut. Um, houses that are half demolished. Um, it used to be that uh, homeless people in Detroit would burn empty houses to amuse themselves and to stay warm. It's the given. And because Detroit has lost over half its population, it's the only major city in the U.S. to at one time have had a population of more than a million and now have less than a million and a lot less than a million. And because of that, it no longer has a tax base to pay for police, for fire, for sanitation, for health, for the basic things that make a community thrive. The given in Detroit is despair. But that given has become the canvas for artists to produce beautiful art. Uh, my friend Andy Krupp is a photographer. He takes pictures of Detroit. And this is, you can't see the color uh, because of the light in the room, the projector, but it's a, it hangs in our living room. It's a beautiful picture. And yet you can see it's a picture of a building with broken out windows looking onto factories that have been shut down and are no longer in service. It's improvisation around the giving. Something beautiful comes out of the destruction of Detroit. And if you know my friend Lashana, who's a spoken word poet in Detroit, you know that the given for her is the experience of being black in Detroit. And yet, out of that comes this beautiful spoken word poetry. So those are Detroit examples. I was trying to think of an example from my own life. Um, I believe in Jesus like totally sold out um, uh, friends and loved ones doubt and have hard times, and I get it. But I came to know Jesus in a particular way in seventh grade when I was being bullied in horrible, horrible ways. And I found companionship 
in the one who suffered and did not return abuse with abuse. But it scarred me. Um, I have ridiculously skinny wrists for uh, a man. Like, Donna's are probably bigger around than mine. Um, and, um, and it's become a sign to me of my weakness, which is tied to that story of being bullied. And um, it came back to bite me pretty hard um, about 12 years ago. My life started fraying at the edges. And so I sought help. And I would tell my therapist, who would be a horrible therapist for most people, but he was real brainy and very unemotional and perfect for me. And he said, uh, I was telling him again my story of weakness. And he said, I'm going to stop you right there. I get it. I know why you tell this as a story of weakness and death and despair. But I have to tell you from where I sit, it's a story of resilience and strength and life. Look at all you've accomplished. I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe that, that someone had improvised around the given, that I had improvised around the given. And, I, and, and then he said, um, our time is up. <laughs> and so I walked down the hall to the men's restroom and sat in the corner and had big, sobbing, heaving tears of joy and grief. I, I had a limit experience that was an improvisation around the given. Are we, does that kind of get us in the ballpark a little bit, what I mean by that? So um, here's the important thing. You don't deny the given. You can't. You know, the Lord hasn't returned. The given's the given. And it can be horrible. And we're not spared from that. But we can resist and work toward joy in the midst of what's given to us. So, Mallory, tell us about, please sweetly tell us about death and despair. Yeah, speaking of improv, my husband is an improv comedian, and I don't know how, I always end up wearing all black talking about stuff like this, and he makes money telling jokes and making everyone happy. So, somehow that works together. Um, but yeah, as Mark said, so joy is a work, and specifically joy is a work of resistance. And I love that language of resistance. So I want to explore that a little bit. This semester, I have been teaching an undergrad Bible course called Story of the Church, where we're looking at sort of the early formation and ethos of the early church, primarily through the lens of Acts. And one of my goals in that class was to really help my students see and understand and grasp the principalities and powers at work. Because you cannot really do any justice to really any story in the book of Acts without naming some of those things, right? So if you think about Acts 16, Paul and Silas in prison, uh, there are myriad powers and principalities at work there that they come up against. There are economic and profit motives that they come up against. There are political authorities that they come up against. There are religious authorities that they come up against. There are gender dynamics that they come up against. Again, the, the young woman who is enslaved by her owners. 
et cetera, et cetera. All of these are at play in this in the story, right? You cannot do justice to any of these texts without really giving a sense of the way that the powers and the principalities are at work through and through. Um, I just spent all day yesterday grading final exams for that class, and so I'd love to say I did a great job of teaching that to the students. The final exams tell me otherwise. I'm still feeling some of the the sorrow. This yeah, Despair. the weight of the powers is real, real right now for me, considering a career change. Um, but at least my intent was to explore that with them. Because even that language, though it's deeply biblical, is is quite foreign for a lot of my students. And interestingly, I find that for so many of them, especially the ones, if they come with any sort of prior affiliation with Christianity or faith or the Bible, they have some minor connection or under, connection with their understanding of that, but it's always this very deeply disembodied spiritual otherworldly reality, right? And usually those powers, those forces are mostly interested in tempting you in some sort of moral way and getting you to make an immoral decision personally and individually. Now, there's much there that can be talked about, but at minimum, what I want them to see is that's an incredibly insufficient way to think about the powers of death that are at work, that are spiritual and also are physical, are material, are corporal, right, that are enfleshed in bodies, that are enfleshed in institutions that take on a whole new spirit and are supposed to lead to life and to flourishing, but often lead to death. They are individual and they are communal. They are at times overt and times very covert and subtle and hidden. And my hope is always to help the students see that the powers and principalities are far more than we often think. For some of us, we don't need a lesson in undergraduate Bible class to know that. Our very stories and realities have made it made us keenly aware that the powers of death and destruction are very much at work. And again, not just in private, individual, hidden ways, uh, but in very real, tangible, flesh and blood embodied ways in our own stories and experiences, in our communities, in our country, in our world, etc. <coughs> Excuse me. So, what do we do in the face of those powers? What do we do in the face of that sort of uh, threat of death and despair? I think back to that story that I referenced a minute ago with Acts 16 where we find Paul and Silas in prison, right? And the powers have wielded their greatest threat, which is always death, right? It's cute that you want to play this. It's cute that you, you know, we'll let you go this far, but know that we will always have the ultimate hand. We will always have the ultimate card, and that is death. We hold that over you, right? That's what the powers thought they could do to Jesus, right? You have, your, you have your ministry. You have this time. Do some healing. That's fine. We will kill you. You can only get so far because we will always wield that as the ultimate threat. And certainly we see that in the case when Paul and Silas and others resist the powers in various ways, and then they find themselves in the midst of prison with that threat very much over them. But they find themselves in prison with their feet shackled as ones who know about Jesus, who are speaking about Jesus, the one who had that same threat wielded against him and dismantled it and said, I refuse to play by that game. I've got a different way, right? And rather than living into the death motives of the, of the principalities and powers, he dismantled those. He took the violence even into his own body and disrupts them and says to the powers, that's fine. You, you can have this card. Play it. I've got one better. And we see resurrection, which we just recently celebrated in Easter. I don't think that Paul and Silas are in prison pretending that they're not in prison or thinking if we can just sing this Carrie Job song loud enough, you know, in enough times, then we'll feel good about what's happening, right? We can pretend that we're not here. It's like we can ad nauseum sing and, and pretend we're good, God's got us, everything's fine. I don't think that's what's happening. I think there's a much deeper sense of rootedness, connect, a rootedness to joy and a connection to joy that says the given tells us we very well may die. It happened to Jesus. It's happened to our friends. It very well may happen to us. And 
that doesn't get the last word. Thanks be to God. I think about that type of resistance work with my friend, a black woman who knows very well the powers of death and destruction um, in her own life, her own story, and in the communities that she inhabits. And this woman does more justice work than I thought any one person could possibly do, but she is involved in all sorts of efforts within Nashville, helps to lead uh, our the Black Lives Matter chapter for our entire city. Literally, if you see any sort of event going on in Nashville with any sort of justice effort, you will see her face or her name plastered in there somewhere. She's always involved, and I'm incredibly inspired by the work that she does. I'm also inspired to see the ways that she intentionally cultivates joy and chooses to live into that and create spaces for it, for herself and for others. Because she's keenly aware of the given. She's not pretending it doesn't exist. She's just refusing to allow that to have the last word. As I mentioned, my husband does improv comedy. And one of the the key principles to doing improv is yes and if you're familiar with that idea, right? You don't come in and deny or block what the other person has said, right? That's not improv, that's just my own agenda. What you do is say yes. Yes to what the the person that's with me on stage has just presented. Yes, okay, I'm taking stock of that, I see it, I have a sense of it, this is the given. And then you do something with it, and then you make more of it, and then you add to it, and then you create something new that did not previously exist until you came in and helped to create that thing. And so my friend does that. She says, yes, there are unjust policing practices in our city. Yes, we have gross inadequacy in terms of fair housing. Yes, I'm a black woman. I know what it's like to have violence inflicted on me in my own body. She, she lives at the intersections of all of those, uh, those forms of injustice. And thanks be to God, they do not get the last word. And one of the ways that she, she um, resists those powers and the death they wield is by cultivating joy, is by refusing to allow those powers to get the last word. I see this as well in the women that I've had the honor of working with in, in um, my work, especially prior to teaching with women survivors of sexual trauma. These women know the given well. They cannot deny the given even if they wanted to or pretend it doesn't exist. When your father is the one who is running the sex trafficking wing in which you are a victim, you cannot pretend that that is not the given. You cannot sing enough praise and worship songs or try to happy your way out of that. That is the given. And any of us looking at this young woman in that sort of circumstance would say, we understand why you might want to give into despair and say, yep, this is what's most true. This is what reality is for me. The names that the powers have given me, that's who I am, right? It is no, it's not a big leap to get from that sort of given to despair and to sorrow and say, I'm done. That's who I remain. Yet somehow, I would see these women come from the most horrific experiences where their given was almost unimaginable at times, and look it in the face and name the given and say, I don't think that has to have the last word about me. I don't think the names that death has given me are really my true name. And so now I'm going to to begin a new story to find out what is my true name. Who am I really? Because death has told me one thing. The powers, however they've experienced him, they've told me one thing. And I think there could be another option. Thanks be to God, right? That's the kind of work, that's the kind of way that joy gets to be an act of resistance. Because death has a, has a way of telling us that what we experience is the totality of reality. That it's the final version of reality. It's the ultimate version of reality. And so while we are saying we're not about denying what the given is, we're not denying what reality is, we are also saying that somehow there is a reality beyond that. That is the way I think about the kingdom of God. That it is the truest version of reality. That somehow there's a better word being spoken here. And joy is a way of helping us to access that. And to again, to say... Death doesn't get the last word here. 
Whether it's for us and our own individual stories and experiences, or for our communities, or for our churches, or for our families, we get to have this disposition of joy that says we are always going in with eyes open and arms open and bodies ready to say, let's cultivate joy. Let's see the given, and then let's resist those powers of death in all the ways that they might seek to impinge on us and tell us what's really true, and we will speak back to them and say, no, you can come this far and no further. Life will have the last word. Yeah, I think of Gandalf. You shall not pass, you know. Uh, the powers of death uh, among people of created space for joy. You shall not pass. Um, um, I, I, I'm thinking, here's an idea I have. I'm thinking a lot of times we talked about what goes together, happiness, unhappiness, joy, sorrow, that the people who've experienced the depth, um, have had the depth experience on the negative side, know what joy is uh, more readily, that um, our, our joy is often calibrated to the depth of the negative experience of life we've had. And um, for, like for me, like um, I feel like often that um, I've been dismissed from some of the very real day-in, day-out things that people experience where they know the power of death every day. Um, like Detroit, uh, it went, I don't know if you know, Joe Lewis is from Detroit. And when he fought for the heavyweight championship in Chicago, the two primary black neighborhoods in Detroit over 100,000 people from those two neighborhoods drove to Chicago to see the fight. When the federal government began to build the interstate system, they built it through those historically black neighborhoods so that the white people who fled the cities to the suburbs would have a way to get into town to get to work. It destroyed those communities. Those neighborhoods in Detroit don't exist anymore. I don't live with the daily experience of despair and death that the people who lived in those neighborhoods did. I'm the beneficiary of that. And I live with this uh, gnawing feeling that the way my life is set up has been on the backs of others. And because of that, that I've replaced the possibility of joy with the value of satisfaction. If I, I'm satisfied. I don't need joy, I'm satisfied. And, my, and life is, you see what I'm saying here? But all of us, um, I, I guess I'm saying it's hard for me to get to joy because the depth of my experience, the extremities aren't there. And I live life in a fairly narrow bandwidth. Um, Let's talk about space. Let's do it. So you name there, Mark, an example of how the, the powers impinge on space, specifically with the erection of the interstate system, right? So in our third move here, we want to talk about how joy requires a space. And I want us to consider all the ways that the threats of, of death uh, seek to impinge on space. And this is going to look... Wait, wait, wait. we got to do that. What's your um, death thing? You're right. We do have to do yeah, that. That's you. I missed it. Sorry. No, that's Richard would not have done that. <laughs> no, Richard would have gone, uh, we talked about we, death? Right. We, we're we going to do, do that? that. 
So um, as a way of getting us into this idea of joy requiring space, as Mark has, has sort of mentioned, <coughs> the given, and use that language of joy as being an improvisation around the given, I want us just to consider what is, what is your given? What are the circumstances that you face? What are the relationships in which you are engaged? What are the realities at play in your life? Just begin to consider those, and as I talk about where we are at on this different spectrum, particularly in relation to space, just, just kind of notice, notice those things. Take some stock of those things. Again, as we said, not denying the given, really facing it, really taking reality and say, this is what the given is right now, so that we know what we're, where we're pivoting from. We know the point of orientation around which we are going to, to improvise. Like, is that sufficient? Let me give an example. Yeah. Like... Um, Mine and Donna's oldest daughter um, is in a long season of bringing her life to some semblance of life after a horrible, horrible experience. And the initial experiences led to kind of a spiral that just pulled her and pulled her and pulled her uh, down. And we live with that every day. We, she lives with us right now, and we feel that acutely. Um, that's like, really, that's like the big given in all, all three of our lives right now. And it's evil, and it's death, and it's despair, and um, it's the given for us. For you, it could be um, disease. For you, it could be a child who's, um, who was brought up in the way of the Lord and chosen a different way. For you, it could be economic circumstances. It's going to be different for all of us, but Take a moment and think about what the given is that joy would be a work of resistance against. So, joy is a work. Joy is a work of resistance against the powers and principalities, and joy requires space. Consider the ways that the powers of death impinge on space. And I want to give a few examples because this can look any number of ways. Think about uh, the very origin stories of the United States as we know and understand it, where a certain group of people came in and revoked space from another group of people and said, you no longer have access to this. What was once yours and always has been, you no longer have access to it, and it's ours. And we plant a different flag here now. It's a pretty stark example of this gross reclamation of space that says, a revocation of space, rather, that says, this is ours. Or I think about the, the young women I served who um, really struggled with intense eating disorders. How the narratives of death and destruction told them, you do not deserve to take up space. And so they would literally and physically seek to take up less space because the powers were impinging on them in that very embodied way to say, you ought to even become smaller in your physical self that you would not occupy more space than you deserve. Um, for me, it looks like when I find myself in spaces or in rooms <clears throat> where I feel like I don't quite have a seat at the table here, and you begin to feel that sense of, of uh, encroachment against you and against your own personhood and self, and there's that, that temptation that says, be quiet. Don't, don't push back, don't resist, don't say too much. And when you say it, don't be too loud, right? Because that would begin to occupy too much space. And the powers of death that are, that are at work in that very space are saying, 
we get to hold the space. Or these power brokers, they're the ones who get to hold or occupy this space. And so if we are going to be serious about cultivating joy as an act of resistance, it will require some measure of space. Um, it might be easy to think about those who do not have access to space, whatever that space might look like, whether it's you know within their own physical bodies or access to, to fair housing or whatever it may be. But I want to consider that even if we are on the other side of that spectrum where we find ourselves with incredible access to power and to privilege, where we actually get a lot of space afforded to us, that even there, the powers of death and darkness are still dictating to us how we ought to think about that space. That they are telling us, in order for you to, to survive, it requires that you take space from other people. Whether that is the physical and actual land, or that to make sure that you always have access to resources and when you get them, hoard them. To make sure that you have enough space, because it's a zero-sum game for the principalities and powers, right? There's only so much. There's no sense of God's abundance there. There's only so much. And however much you don't have access to, it's gone. So get as much as you can. Or maybe for some of us, we're tempted that when we walk into a room, that we feel like we need to really fill up that, that room with ourselves. Because we have to, to have a clear sense of people need to know who we are and the power we have and the authority we have and the name that we've been given because we're so afraid of those things being limited or taken from us. And so we seek to occupy space to make sure that we're the one that's heard. And in doing so, robbing space from other people, right? In either case, whether we have the access to the power and the privilege or not, where we have access to a lot of space or not, the powers are still the ones at work. We are all <laughs> blinded by those powers in so many ways. In fact, I think that my friends who are on the other end of that spectrum with the lack of access to it see it far more clearly than I do. Because it just looks to me, it doesn't sound like death, it just sounds like a really good promise of security and comfort, and safety, and all of those other gross idols that the, that the powers continue to prop up and say, pursue these things. This is what matters. So just consider where you find yourself on that, on that spectrum. And it may vary, right? It may vary on different demographics, different ways that we might identify. It may vary in different seasons. But just consider the ways that you found yourself on that spectrum. And how have the powers and principalities been behind the way that you have considered how you occupy space or don't occupy space? How you claim space or how you don't have access to it? It's all death, no matter where we, we are on that spectrum. Personally, one of my spiritual practices, because I do feel that sort of pushback and in, in certain places especially, that there's, there's not enough room for you at this table. One of my spiritual practices is if I, if I go into a space and begin to feel that, I will sometimes actually take off my shoes, but if I, if maybe they stink a little bit and I might not want to do that in the moment, at least I look down at my feet at minimum. I see myself planted there in that space. And I say, Mallory, this is who you are. You are a child of God. You are an image bearer of God. You deserve to take up space here. When my primary point of orientation is not the narratives of death, but the, but the narratives of life that say you are an image bearer of God, then I am not tempted to say you deserve to take up space and you ought also to take up the space of your neighbor. Nor am I tempted to say you need to take up less space. I'm not tempted in those moments to take up more or less space than is mine, but to fully inhabit the space that is mine, and then in doing so, try to create space so that everybody else is able to do the same, right? Because when you get to do that, when you experience that, it frees you up to then to do that for others. You, you long for them to, to feel that way. Whether that's, I want this person to feel welcome in this room, or I want them to have the same access to affordable housing that I've always had, etc., etc. One of the ways, and the really creative ways that Willie Jennings talks about this is through the idea of sonic space, which I think Mark is going to talk about a little, a little bit more, and we're going to get to explore together tonight, which I'm excited about. Yeah, uh, 
Jennings talks about the slave experience in America, that uh, even though their lives were um, horrible, the given was um, dramatically bad, that joy was possible in spaces that were apart from their life as a slave. So in the brush arbors or the circle dances that they would do, and that there was always music, and that music freed their bodies in ways that uh, made joy possible. Because for the slaves, their bodies were inscribed in white identity in a way that their bodies could never be free. I think about the meme, I'm uh, spiritual, not religious. Uh, I think that's not a meme for poor people. Um, I think it's um, the, uh, the option between being spiritual without being religious, without having space, is something that wealthy people think about. Um, if you think even now about the black experience of worship, right? Religion's important because it's space that's not um, prescribed by some other power or authority. Um, I have a friend who's an um, African-American theologian at Princeton who talks about how we dress for church. And part of it is because on Sundays, we're in free space where we have control of our bodies, and we're going to adorn them. <laughs> you know, we're going to wear hats and suits and, uh, it, right? The space is necessary for the joy, and their bodies are involved. And because of that, music is always important. Music moves our bodies. It frees us. It, and I don't live in this space. Like, my body is, like, tight, you know? Like... I, I get why people are raising hands down in the field house, but if, if I give a little hip move or that's kind of the, you know, I, I'm a white man worshiping, you know. Um, but I also feel like always I'm in my space in full possession of who I am. And for those whose given is not that, then prescribe space where there can be community and bodies that are freely moving and music becomes vitally important to that. What Jennings calls sonic space. Now, I do love music. And to coax Mallory to do this with me, I promised her that we could use Justin Timberlake music. <laughs> um, it's the only, so far, the only kind of downside that I've found to being friends with Mallory. <laughs> it's, it's not like she likes Justin Timberlake. It's, it's, it's idolatrous what's going That's on That's fair. Here. That's absolutely fair. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so we're going to play some music uh, here in a minute. And the only rule is you have to move your body. That's the only rule. I do this with my undergrads, and I have one guy who sits on the back row who does this. He is um, completing the assignment given to him, but there's no joy there, right? 
there's resistance, but resistance to joy, right? Uh, digging deeper at the powers of death in his life. All right. So I want you to think right now back to the thing you identified as the given. And we're going to improvise around the given. You got it? You feel it? We're not going to deny it. We're not going to say Christians are immune. Do you have the given? All right. We're going to play two songs as an act of defiance against the powers of death. We're going to work joy. We're going to lean into it. We're going to allow our bodies to be liberated for joy. And it may only be this, and that's okay. I know Donna will do way more than that. Uh, all right. I should warn you that at the last wedding I officiated, I had someone come up to me and say, I've never seen a minister dance like that before. And I'm still not sure whether that was a compliment or a, huh, that's interesting. So I've also been compared to Elaine from Seinfeld when I, when I dance, which is 100% a compliment. So, you know, no pressure. All right, remember what we're doing. We're resisting the given. We're not allowing the, we're saying no farther. We're in space that none of us own our control. We're liberated here if we'll do it. And we are resisting the given.